and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Kaylee Costello. Our guest today is Annie Delgado, the Chief Compliance Officer at Upstart. Upstart is a leading AI lending marketplace partnering with banks and credit unions to expand access to affordable credit. Upstart was founded in 2012 and went public via an IPO in 2020. Annie has been at Upstart for eight years. As part of her role, she has built a data-driven compliance program at Upstart, navigating the regulatory environment associated with the use of AI-powered credit modeling techniques. In today's episode, we discuss how Upstart's use of ML has evolved from a binary decision model to what is now a fully automated loan process for the majority of their borrowers, why Upstart has decided not to become a chartered bank, how Upstart works to prevent bias in ML algorithms, and much more. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. Hi, Annie. Welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. Where are you calling in from today? Hi, thank you so much for having me today. I'm calling in from Los Gatos, California, which is about 60 miles uh, southwest of San Francisco. Awesome. To start with, are you able to tell us a bit about Upstart's AI lending marketplace? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Upstart, just taking a step back, kind of describe the company, the mission, the problem we're trying to solve. Um, We've been around for a little bit over a decade. And um, specifically, the problem that we saw when when we started on this journey is that There are less than half, um, you know, 50% of Americans that have access to prime credit, um, but about 80% that have never defaulted on a loan. And we learned this by doing a study through, um, you know, traditional credit bureau data. And so um, the problem to solve is there's this big gap between people who can afford to repay a loan and people who actually can get the loan that they need when they need it. And this is a really important problem to solve because most, if not all of us, are going to need a loan for something at some point in our life, whether it's to go to school or to buy a house or to buy a car. Um, Access to credit is just um, really a critical component of people, you know, being able to run their lives and achieve their dreams. And so we set out on this um, sort of venture to use alternative data and alternative credit modeling techniques in order to close that gap of who can who has access to a loan and who can repay the loan. Um, and so that's what we're all about. We've been, like I said, at it for, for more than a decade. Um, core mission is expanding access to affordable credit. I'd love to talk more about how that works in a second. But to start with, I'd be interested in hearing more about your role. So you're a chief compliance officer. What do you do day to day and how has that role evolved as Upstart has grown? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, you can think of a chief compliance officer's role as being a person who's in charge of operationalizing whatever requirements exist for the company. So some of those requirements are regulatory requirements that come from, you know, various laws and regulations. Some of them are contractual requirements because of agreements you've made with banks or or lending partners or, or vendors. Um, But whatever the sort of genesis of the requirement is, the compliance team is going to help operationalize that by working with the business unit um, that's responsible for, you know, implementing that requirement and making sure there's controls in place that it happens um, effectively, assessing the risk of, you know, what happens if if that thing goes wrong, and then monitoring and testing to make sure that it doesn't go wrong. Um, And so a compliance officer is, is really operationalizing 
um, a lot of different requirements. So, you know, as you can imagine, my role has changed a lot over the last, um, I've been at Upstart for, for eight years now. So my role has changed a lot as we, as our business has become um, increasingly complex. So when I started at Upstart, we offered um, one lending product, an unsecured personal loan product through one partner bank. And uh, since that time, we've really expanded quite a bit. We now offer several different lending products. We do auto refinance, we do auto purchase, we do small dollar lending, and we also um, serve now over 100 banks. So um, you can imagine the requirements of all those different contracts and all those different regulatory regimes. Um, There's just a lot of complexity to make um, make sure we streamline in the business. So you mentioned that at the heart of your value proposition is using machine learning to make a credit model that's more accurate than traditional credit scores like FICO and that enables more people to access credit. How has Upstart's use of machine learning evolved over time? Um, It's evolved a lot, as you might imagine, which is sort of the the beauty of using machine learning is that it, it can evolve quite quickly. So if I sort of travel back in time to where we were, um, you know, 10 years ago, trying to launch the platform, uh, we used, uh, you know, machine learning to make sort of a binary decision. Can this person repay a loan or not? Um, over the years, we have really invested in our machine learning models in a, in a few sort of key ways. Um, first of all, we have added increasing amounts of data to the models um, so that they have more information to leverage in terms of in terms of decision making processes. So, um, you know, we started out with a more limited subset of variables. We now have something like 1600 data inputs that goes into um, into the models as they're as they're making assessments um, in the underwriting process. Um, another way that they have evolved is in the mathematical techniques that are that are used within the model. So uh, there's been a lot of research and advances, um, you know, technically and mathematically in the last decade. And so we're always making sure that we are employing, um, you know, experts in this field that can continue to sort of invest in the sort of cutting edge, tech, cutting edge technology um, for the models themselves. And then the last piece is the application of the models. So I mentioned, you know, at our at our outset, it was really a sort of a binary yes/no decision that a model was responsible for making. But now we use models in all aspects of the credit process. So uh, we use it for things like how likely um, an application is to be fraudulent. And so that'll decide whether a person should go through a fully automated loan process or they should go through a more manual um, sort of documentary review process. We use it for loan pricing. So if somebody can is, is approved for the loan, what is the right price to offer them that's you know based on their risk? We use it for things like servicing and collections, right, to, to make decisions about what time to call people, where, who to call, et cetera, um, if they need uh, outreach from us. So we use our models in just a lot more applications um, than, than we did at our onset 10 years ago. Are there any interesting insights from the models that you're able to share with us? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, if you have taken out a loan or, or um, anybody has taken out a loan, I think one of the biggest struggles that people have with the loan is the process itself. Um, and so a lot of times what happens if you go to a traditional bank, you have to bring along with you 
a lot of your financial records, your pay stubs and your W-2s and your tax returns and um, all kinds of things. And then a human looks through those things and it takes, uh, you know, days or weeks or sometimes even months, depending on how much of a backlog the the bank might have in, in application processing. For us, using our models, 84% of our borrowers are able to get fully approved with no human intervention in the loan process and no document upload. So 84% of people don't actually have to upload a document or have a, a person review it, um, which is which is pretty staggering when you think about how um, helpful AI can be and ML can be in terms of automating the loan process for people to make it a lot faster um, relative to people who have to wait months to get access to the money that they need. Um, another thing that is a really cool sort of thing that our model has done is not only can it make the process easier, but it can actually make the pricing better as well. I think the next thing you would hear from from people is that sometimes loans are just too expensive and they don't like the price of a loan. Uh, Using uh, our model, banks are able to approve more people and at lower rates than what you would get under a traditional model using only a credit score. And so you're really making the borrower's life better, both from the pricing um, component, but also from the experience component when you're leveraging these models. And fairer access to credit is something that regulatory bodies and other fintechs, such as, for example, those that integrate payroll data, are thinking about as well. In your view, how will this play out? Like, will we see changes to traditional credit scores, or are we more likely to see, you know, an increased use of machine learning models that have access to more data to make more decisions? Yeah, I mean, obviously, a biased point of view. I think everybody should be using um, machine learning models in their credit decisioning processes, and and the reason for this, and and you know, I'll get to your second point about whether we'll see credit scores evolve as well. But I think the reason for this is we have learned. When you think about the credit scores invention 30-something years ago, even, even longer maybe at this point, it was, a, it was a huge innovation because prior to that, the only process you had for loan approval was a human underwriter, which was rife with you know, potential for bias and, and problematic outcomes. So the credit score was a huge intervention, um, innovation at the time. But it's sort of stagnated. It hasn't changed much since that that time, but the world has changed significantly. And so to think that one three-digit number can be used for all flavors of credit, for all types of borrowers, is really just something that I think our world has grown past. And so what ML and um, AI models have the opportunity to do for the industry is it has the ability for us to, as a as a banking industry, to um, evaluate people individually based on their individual merits and their individual needs. How much credit are they looking for? What is the purpose? Who is this person? You know, can they repay their loan? And so, really, that individualized approach I think is really important. Um, and so, I I can't imagine that the world is not going to eventually get there. How fast it gets there is a question, but I do think there's a point in the future where there will be no you know lender in the country that's not using some flavor of ML in their underwriting processes. It's just a question of how quickly we get there. And the, your second part of your question about if we see cr- traditional credit scores evolve is, I think, a really interesting question. Um, I think we've already started to see this. So Vantage Score, for example, has started to integrate cash flow data into their their score. You know, just like with any company, they they're going to evolve um, their processes as well to sort of meet uh, the needs of the market. So if we start moving towards a direction where banks 
and other lenders more and more need ML and alternative data in their processes, the credit score credit scoring providers will also hopefully evolve over time um, so they don't get left behind. So it's going to be an interesting uh, decade to see how this all unfolds. Absolutely. And you mentioned a bit about you know, bias issues in um, traditional loans. Obviously, with machine learning models as well, it's important to make sure that the model's not including any sort of systematic bias or you know, having a disparate effect on any groups. I know that this is something that Upstart have focused on in terms of ensuring that your models are fair and unbiased. So as the chief compliance officer, like how did you go about this and how do you continue to manage this? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's it's such an important question. It's it's the question to ask when you're talking about um, really any underwriting system, but especially a new system. Is is it fair? And um, you know, how do you prevent it from locking in any sort of historical biases that exist in other systems? Um, and so, the way that I typically think about this is any process that you're going to use to underwrite a loan is a three part process. There is the inputs that go in to the uh, sort of decision-making system. There's the decision-making system itself, the tool, and then there is the outcome of the decision-making system. So if you imagine the pre-credit score days where uh, this was humans, a person walks into a bank branch, they give a set of documents um, and, um, you know, uh, paperwork to a human human reads it and that's going into their decision-making system, which is their own brain. And their brain is making all kinds of sort of assessments and um, uh, connecting all sorts of dots about what they see in that application. And then the brain is rendering a decision based on that, an, an outcome, right? Either an approved deny decision or a pricing decision. And so as I've thought through how to measure fairness in machine learning models, really all three of those uh, sort of components are things that you want to be measuring. So what is going into the system? Is it data that is a potential proxy for something that you don't want to be involved in the decision making? How do you test for that? How do you statistically measure it to make sure that what's going into the system is, is data that is you know, needed to assess somebody's creditworthiness and not extra data that, that doesn't serve a purpose of assessing their creditworthiness? Um, the second part is the is the system itself, right? So the system is making correlation uh, types of um, inferences and this type of thing. The beauty about an ML model that's different from a human underwriter is you can see, you can understand that and see it in an ML model, right? You can see the um, correlations and the sort of things that are happening. And so that way you can adjust it if there's things that you don't like about those assessments, right? Because it's a supervised model, much harder to um, adjust a human brain. And then the last piece is the outputs, right? So what are the actual decisions that are coming out of the model what is the ratio of approvals from one group relative to another group or the pricing differences from one group relative to another group so that you have a continuous feedback loop? If you see a disparity in your, in your outcomes, you can look back at what's going in and what's happening in the middle that I want to change or adjust accordingly. Um, and so I think that uh, there's a lot of discussion in the industry and in regulatory circles about you know, the potential for AI to lock in systematic bias 
But I actually am excited about the opposite, which is that AI has the potential to solve systematic bias if it's done if it's done the right way and if people are really thoughtful about doing it. Um, and so that's one of the things that I think is is most exciting to me, and and honestly most exciting to a lot of upstarters, um, and why why we work on this problem because we see AI as as really the solution to some of these issues. And switching gears a little bit, I'd love to talk a bit more about Upstart's business model. So, firstly. In terms of things like bank charters, other marketplace lenders like Lending Club and SoFi have become chartered banks in recent years, presumably because for them, the lower cost of funding outweighed, you know, the increased regulatory burden that comes with that. Um, However, correct me if this is wrong, but I think it's Upstart's intention to remain as a lending platform. Can you talk us through kind of the rationale for this strategic choice? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, at several at several points in our history, we had this sort of uh, discussion of, you know, some of our competitors are pursuing bank charters. Is this something that we should consider? And really, each time, philosophically, what we've come back to as a leadership team is that we are a technology provider to banks. We want every lender in the country to be able to use our technology because we believe our technology it's helpful to consumers and it's helpful to the banks. And so if you become a bank, your technology is only you know, useful to the customers that you are serving. If you partner with banks, you can have a much broader um, application of your technology. And so um, each time that we've sort of had this question, we've come to the same conclusion, which is that uh, as a platform, we're a partner to banks, uh, not a competitor to banks. And a bit more on those sort of partnerships with banks that you have. What's the sort of typical profile of these partner banks? Like, for example, is it mainly mid-sized and regional banks? And how have you approached sort of starting and growing these bank partnerships? Yeah, absolutely. So we partner with banks of various sizes, but I think the banks that um, have the most sort of need for a product like ours is the sort of more regional community banks who really have a desire to expand their footprint and expand their offering to acquire new customers so that they can stay relevant and compete with some of the larger banks. Um, and they they need a mechanism to do that at scale that they might not have internally. And so if they partner with someone like Upstart who has a referral network, we can help them acquire new customers and we can help provide them needed technologies that their customers want. Because, I mean, let's be honest, most customers are not dying to walk into a bank branch and sit with a, a teller anymore. You know, most people want to be able to do their banking at home with their cup of coffee and their jammies. And so, uh, you know, smaller banks, community banks need to be able to stay technically relevant. And um, Upstart is is a way for them to do that if they partner with Upstart or, or with lots of fintechs that offer these sort of bank um, bank facing products like that so that they can offer technology that their customers really want and need and prevent prevent their customer from going to a bigger bank that has more of the sort of digital offerings. Machine learning models can seem like a little bit of a black box for those on the outside. So how does Upstart think about you know competitive advantage in the AI lending marketplace sector? For example, do you think it's a question of, you know, who can make the absolute best machine learning model? Or is it more about, you know, distinguishing your company through your partnerships and your distribution? Yeah, I think I think it's all of the above. I think um, our machine learning model is 
for sure a huge competitive advantage for us. You know, a lot of, as I mentioned, I think there's going to be a point in the future where everybody is using machine learning. We have a we have a pretty significant head start as the sort of largest part, uh, largest um, you know, company that's been investing in this over the last decade, and so. Um, you know, we have we have a, a big competitive advantage there just in terms of the, you know, technology that we've invested in building, but also the training data sets, right? So ML, in order to, um, you know, work properly, needs a lot of training data. And so we have, you know, tons and tons of training data coming in every day, every time somebody makes a payment on a loan or misses a payment on a loan that's feeding those models. And so um, that competitive advantage is, is huge. And then I think um, also, honestly, the, um, you know, the, the bank partnerships model is also a competitive advantage. Like I mentioned, there's only so much you can do as a company if you are, um, you know, just serving your customers as opposed to having a broader outreach. And so the more products that we can develop to solve consumer sort of problems and struggles with banking, that then banks can decide to adopt and offer to their customers. I think the bigger the the network becomes and the outreach becomes. Um, and so I think that that's a really important component of our business model as well. Beyond what you mentioned around access to training data, do you think there are material differences in the machine learning models that are deployed across the different platforms? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think so. There's a lot of different types of, um, you know, modeling techniques that can be used. There's a lot of different types of data. There's a lot of different types of applications, you know, application for machine learning models. And so, you know, one company might decide to tackle one set of problems using ML. Another company might decide to tackle an entirely different problem. Uh, so, for instance, I know some of the larger banks um, use ML for a lot of their customer um, contact center type of stuff. So who to call, what questions to ask them, when to engage them. Uh, that's an entirely sort of different set of problems to apply ML to than the credit underwriting space um, where you're trying to decide what price to offer somebody on a loan. And so um, there is, I think, a lot a lot of different use cases for, for, um, for AI models. And honestly, we're just kind of at the beginning of this. So there's a lot of different use cases today. And in 10 years, there's going to be exponentially more as people sort of uncover new new problems that, that um, ML can help solve. For those companies that are using ML for underwriting, do you think that there's a major difference between these different companies in terms of what data they use and how they use that data? Yeah. So there are, you know, there's some companies out there that are, um, you know, just relying on sort of traditional credit bureau data. There's some companies that have experimented with things like cash flow data. Uh, there's been a lot of sort of research in that space and how cash flow data might be helpful um, in making more inclusive lending decisions. Um, obviously, Upstart is known for our use of education data, uh, which is a, a data set that we believe is is a really strong um, you know, set of data to add into an ML model to get a more holistic view of a, um, you know, of an applicant's circumstances. Not a lot of other players out there are using education data. So the, the types of data um, is definitely, um, you know, dif differs amongst companies. Interesting. Um, and 2023 has been a pretty tumultuous year for the economy with the banking sector being no exception to that. 
although you're not a bank, you do work closely with partner banks and rely on them for funding. What's top of mind for you in the wake of events like SVB and First Republic? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think there's there's a couple of answers to that. Um, for our partners themselves, you know, what's top of mind is liquidity issues. So um, an interest rate risk. Those are things that are sort of core to banking risk management. So obviously, it's important to our lending partners um, and something that uh, they watch closely and, and we need to be helpful in. A nice thing about the Upstart program is their short-term loans uh, and high yield. So if you have you know interest rate risk because you have a lot of long-term assets, investing in some uh, Upstart-powered loans can be a useful strategy for you as a lending partner. Um, so that's sort of one one thing that's top of mind. And then I think there's also this sort of risk management um, hygiene or best practices about how you think as a company about business continuity planning, right? And so I think one thing with the SVB fallout that probably everybody was thinking about is, you know, if SVB closed down on a Friday, we had a weekend where we didn't know what was going to happen. And we had this this circumstance where on Monday morning, there could have been a lot of companies that had to sort of shutter their doors because they didn't have access to, to money anymore. And thankfully, the FDIC stepped in and that didn't happen. But if they hadn't been, a lot of the sort of vendor supply chains that different companies rely on would have been shut off. And so banks should be thinking, banks and fintech providers, everybody really should be thinking about who are my critical third-party relationships and what would I do if if something you know disrupted their ability to provide that service to me. Um, and that, that really comes down to a business continuity planning t- type of program. Um, so I think this uh, is a unpleasant um, and unfortunate sort of reminder of something that we should all be be thinking about on a routine basis. Absolutely. Um, and looking at the industry more broadly, what trends or shifts do you expect to see in lending over the next couple of years? Gosh, well, from an aspirational um, answer, I would say what I hope to see um, and whether or not we'll see it in the next couple of years is remains to be seen. But um, one of the things that happens when we go into a down economy, I'm old enough now that I've lived through through several of these. And, and one of the things that happens is banks sort of stop lending. And so you have this really unfortunate circumstance where the economy is not looking so good People need access to credit more than ever. And at that same time, banks have to adopt a risk-off sort of approach and they they cut cut lending or they tighten their credit standards. And I think that's really unfortunate. And so what I would love to see happen is leveraging ML and AI, uh, enabling lenders to have a future-proof sort of lending strategy, even in a down cycle so that they can keep the money flowing to the consumers that need access to credit, even during those sort of uncertain times. And so that's one thing that um, Upstart has thought a lot about. We developed um, and released this year a functionality called the Upstart Macro Index UMI that actually um, shows a um, historic view on the effects of the macroeconomic environment on the performance of credit. And so if you can can measure that historically and make better predictions about the future, then you can safely and responsibly continue to lend even when the economy is in a tough spot. 
Um, and so I would really dream of a day that that is the circumstance that banks don't have to just stop lending when things get hard um, and instead can, can again, keep the money flowing to the people who need it. So that's what I hope, you know, will be the, the AI revolution will, will sort of allow that. Makes sense. Hopefully that pulls through. And when talking about AI these days, it's almost impossible to avoid the topic of generative AI. So do you currently incorporate generative AI and what role do you think that it will play in the future? Um, I think anybody who is not thinking about generative AI should start thinking about generative AI, especially if you're a risk professional, because you know, it's it's so it, it's been around for a while, but it became very widespread this year. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's just a lot more people that are yeah, thinking about it, using it, thinking about how it could help them, um, and so on and so forth. And so, over the next couple of years, I expect it it really to sort of pick up in steam and and um, and increase in the in the use cases that people have for it. We don't currently use any generative AI for any of our sort of underwriting or application processing models. But I think all companies probably have employees who are using it for research and who are using it for editing uh, email content and who knows what what sort of personal use case people have for it. And so I think that uh, risk professionals like myself need to write at the onset of this technology. So right now be thinking about what do I want people using this for versus what do I not want them using it for? What tools, generative AI tools, do I feel safe about them using versus the ones I would want them not using because I'm concerned about the sort of security implications? And then how do I do quality control around the outputs of the generative AI? You know, I'm sure you saw there was a um, situation this last week where an attorney uh, used generative AI to write a position statement. And the generative AI made up, fabricated a bunch of, of cases and case law for this position statement. That's the type of use case I'm saying we need pretty robust quality control over because um, it's it's really sort of the power of Google, but magnified. Um, and so we don't want a situation where, where there's a bunch of false information that's being spread around. So companies really need to be thinking about how to put controls in place for their, for their own um, institution to make sure that they don't um, find themselves in an um, unfortunate situation like that, like that attorney did. So. Absolutely. Um, and to wrap up, we'd love to do a quick sort of lightning round with you um, with some sort of shorter, fun questions. So firstly, outside of lending, what fintech vertical are you most excited about? Uh, so I'm really excited about some of the um, sort of inv individual investor type of um, fintechs. I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff happening that that just enables sort of investor savviness and um, ease of use. Uh, whereas I think you know, historically, there was a high bar to sort of invest in the stock market because you always, a lot of people felt like they didn't have access to information. And so some of these fintechs that are are providing that I think are really interesting. I'm also really excited about some of the fintech work being done for small business. You know, small business owners have a similar challenge as I was describing, you know, community banks having, which is as technology explodes, how do they stay relevant? And so some of the fintechs that are helping them move money, offer services um, to customers in a in a more digital way. Are really helping those small businesses thrive, and so that's something that I think is really important for our economy, um, and also just for all those people's livelihood. So I'm really excited about some of those as well. And um, what's your top book recommendation? 
Um, fiction or nonfiction? I though. <laughs> so I'm a, I'm a big reader. Um, I would say, um, you know, from a nonfiction standpoint, one thing that I think everybody should read is uh, The Checklist Manifesto by Atul uh, Gawande, I think is how you say his name. Uh, it's this really fascinating book. The title sounds really boring, but it's not boring at all. And it's really about the reality that our jobs are so much more complex nowadays that our human brains need to be saved for thinking about high-level creative problems. And what happens is when we're thinking about high-level creative problems, we make silly mistakes on the things that are easy to you know, overlook when you're just trying to run through a set of steps. And so he goes through all these fascinating case studies from the airline industry and the healthcare industry about how simple tools like a checklist have prevented the silly mistakes and allowed for bigger innovation because the human brain can then focus on the creative problem-solving types of things. Um, so that that book, I think, is, is just fascinating, and I would highly recommend that everyone read it. I will add that to my list. Uh, and finally, what advice do you have for someone who's interested in working in a compliance type role in fintech? Um, so I think my advice for somebody working in compliance would be would be really sort of similar advice to to anybody who's you know starting out in their career in any field right now. And and really the advice is learn to think for yourself. I think in um, you know human history, a lot of um, sort of people's jobs depended on somebody else telling them what to do and then them executing on that thing. And now, especially with things we're talking about, like generative AI and and some of these other things, all of those things that can just be automated and are just easy instructions are going to be automated. And so where, where people really should be spending their time is how to think for themselves, how to open their mind, think outside the box, identify how to find solutions. Finding problems is super easy. Finding solutions is very hard. Um, And so really exercising the muscle of asking questions and thinking for yourself and being open-minded to other people's sort of um, points of view so that you can can see the problem from all angles is just a really important skill set to work on, whether you want to work in compliance or risk or or any other sort of, um, you know, area. So... Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to be here. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and give us a follow on social media. We appreciate the support and hope that you'll continue to spread the word to more listeners. If you'd like to keep up with all the content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Medium at Wharton FinTech, where you'll be able to find articles, interviews, and much more analyzing all aspects of the FinTech industry. As always, thank you to our editor, Rafael Austria. And until next time, this is your host, Kaylee Costello. Costello.